And I invite you to turn again in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. We'll remember that chapters 11 and 12 of Matthew set out the growing opposition to Jesus' ministry on the part, especially of the religious establishment, but uh, really uh, coming from a number of different quarters. We'll see that intensifying, and uh, especially we're going to notice this uh, conflict focusing in on a particular aspect of Jesus' teaching today. Uh, now, we noticed as well there at the end of chapter 11, if you want to glance back up at the closing verses of that chapter, we, we saw that that passage ended with that wonderful declaration of, of Jesus, uh, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Have you been resting in the Lord this past week? Not just on the day of rest, but uh, spiritually have you been able to rest in the Lord. I hope you're learning that lesson as we go through this passage, because Jesus is going to continue teaching in that same vein, really, because we're going to see a real contrast between the burden of sin, the burden of legalism, the burden of man-made rules, and the easy yoke of obedience to Jesus, and that's going to come to the forefront in our text this morning. So let's read for our consideration this Lord's Day, the first eight verses of chapter 12 of the Gospel of Matthew. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest and the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There is an awful lot packed into this passage, into just these few verses, but I, I hope we can uh, get through it, at least sort of... Uh, skim through this and give you enough time, give you enough to meditate on uh, later as you go through the week and think back on this passage. Uh, the scene is set out for us. Jesus and his disciples are passing through some grain fields on the Sabbath. Now remember, the, the lay of the land is very different there. They don't have streets and roads like we do. Uh, many of the, the paths that people regularly use uh, go right through uh, other people's property, okay? There, there's no 
There are no hedgerows like you see in, in England, for instance. There's no curbing or anything like we've got. Uh, they're making the most of their land, and so there may be a path coming to this field, but the farmer still sows the whole thing. So as they are passing through one of these fields, uh, all the disciples have to do is just reach out their hand and, and grab some stalks and strip the uh, grain off those stalks and rub those together in their hands. Uh, if you've grown up in wheat country, maybe you've done this kind of thing. Rub it between their hands and, and blow on it to get the husk out of the way and then pop it in your mouth. It's a nice, nice snack, a nice uh, satisfaction for those gnawing pains of hunger that, that you may have. Now, what they're doing here is entirely legal according to scriptural law. They, they're not, this is not considered stealing. In, in fact, uh, if you want, at some point, you could go back in Leviticus 19, Verses 9 and 10, Leviticus 23, verse 22, Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 and 25, it, it is, is set out explicitly, you're to allow people to glean, to, to take from your crops, whether it be wheat in the field, some kind of standing grain, grapes from the vineyard as they're going through. Uh, now, they're not allowed to, you know, take a basket and, and fill it up. But uh, if they're passing through, it's, it's entirely within the law and something that is, should be done to allow them to eat. This is one of the many ways that, that God's law in the Old Testament provided for people who were poor, who were destitute. Uh, during the harvest time, they, they, they could be guaranteed that their, their stomachs wouldn't be empty because they could always do this. So there's nothing wrong with what they're doing here. And in fact, the Pharisees are, are not upset, thinking the disciples are somehow, somehow stealing from someone. What, what, is, uh, what is really going on here, in their opinion, is that the disciples are violating the Sabbath. Okay? The, the Pharisees uh, have developed, uh, they've developed about 39 different ways, different rules that specify what you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath, okay? And, and so they look at what the disciples are doing, and this is what they see. They see them taking grain off the stalks. Well, that's harvesting, okay? Then they see them rubbing the grains in their hands. That's threshing. They see them blowing away the husks. That's winnowing. And then they pop it in their mouth. They've prepared food. Okay, so they have broken the Sabbath laws repeatedly by doing work on the Sabbath. That's what they're objecting to. Okay, they're bringing up the issue of observing the Sabbath, that, that fourth commandment that is uh, given in the Ten Commandments and, and was and was meant to be taken seriously. And in fact, we don't have time to go into it with any depth, but you could even make an argument that a big part of the reason why the people of Israel are, are banished from the land, are sent into exile, is because they violated this commandment. Okay, God says through the prophet, when you're in exile... The land will finally get its Sabbath rest. 
You have not given it a break. You have not observed the Sabbath days. You have not observed the sabbatical year. You have not observed the year of Jubilee. All those were times in which the land was still lie fallow. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the land its Sabbath rest <laughs> because I'm going to kick you out of it. So you could sort of see why the Pharisees think this is a big deal, okay? And why Sabbath-keeping became such, such an important thing for them. So some groups even pushed it further. The Essenes down in the vicinity of the Dead Sea Scroll, that community that, that preserved the, uh, the writings of the scripture, which we have been blessed by uh, since their discovery in, in caves in the Qumran, 1949 and 1950s, that they took it even further than the Pharisees did in terms of their scrupulousness about making rules for things you could not do on the Sabbath. So that's what they're upset about. That's what they're calling Jesus' attention to. These are your learners, your disciples, the Pharisees say, and so they're really accusing Jesus, aren't they? You haven't taught your students well. Look, they don't even know how to observe the Sabbath. So that's what Jesus is responding to then in verse 3 and following. And, and he does it in an interesting way. You probably picked that up as, as you were reading through this passage yourself. This is not typically the way we argue, the way we debate an issue. But it is very Hebraic. This is very much like the kind of language that the Pharisees would understand. Uh, first of all, we see Jesus using rhetorical questions often, and he uses one here. Have you not read? Now, he's not asking for a response to that. That's a rhetorical question. He knows they've read this. Okay. He knows they've read this, they've heard this read. If they haven't read it themselves, and being wealthy and leaders, they probably would have had the opportunity to read scriptures, actually. Common people, you could only hear it because you didn't have your own copy of God's word, but they probably actually read it as well as heard it read. So, so they have read this. So as a rhetorical question is really saying, you haven't paid attention to what you've read. You've read the Bible, but it's gone in one ear and out the other. You, you, you haven't picked up on what it, its significance at all. So right away, he's challenging the way they have been treating the Scripture. Haven't you read this? Haven't you understood what's being conveyed by this narrative? Okay, he goes back to a narrative from the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, this this... This is explicitly a way in which Pharisees would argue concerning uh, the observance of the law. One of the arguments, they, the techniques they would use would be to go back to the Old Testament and find a narrative there that related to whatever they were discussing. I say, okay, here in this narrative we read this, and therefore we can conclude that. So that's exactly what he's doing. He's using their own techniques here. And he takes them back to this interesting episode in the, in the life of David. Now, you remember who David is. He's that shepherd boy who became king at this particular point 
in the narrative in, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, David has been anointed. Okay, Saul has been rejected by God, but he's still on the throne. David has been anointed, and probably some people at least already know that. And, and yet David is continuing to try to be a loyal subject to his king. And so David is actually a warrior in Saul's army and bringing great success for the nation in his fighting. But Saul has become so jealous of David's popularity that he's become violent. He, he is, he, he's already had a few episodes where he's, he, he's had almost what seems to be like a fit and, and, and tried to kill David. And despite that, David persevered in, in trying to appease his, his anger and trying to calm him down and, and be a loyal subject to him. Well, just before our text, the, the line has been crossed. Now, now, by the time we get to the story in 1 Samuel 21, Jonathan has told David, my, my father, remember Jonathan was, was Saul's son, who's David's best friend, and Jonathan says to, to David, the line has been crossed. My father is determined to kill you. In fact, if you don't, if you don't leave immediately, you're dead. I remember this is a relatively small little country here, okay? And, and, and most everybody travels by foot all the time. And so David has to, has to be at a hasty retreat. And so he and some of the other fighters who were his friends, uh, who believed that... Uh, he was the next anointed king, and were loyal to him. Some of them have left with him, and they've left with nothing but the clothes on their backs. They didn't even have time, and plus it would have been dangerous to try to get weapons out of the armory, the king's armory. So, so they're unarmed. They have nothing but the clothes on, the, on their back, and they, they head away from civilization out toward the wilderness. And on the way, they stop at this little place called Nob. And there the, the priests uh, have the tabernacle and are conducting worship. And David uh, comes to the priest there and says, we need food. Okay? He, he tells a half lie and says we're leaving because of the king. Well, they're leaving because of the king, but not for any good reason. And he says, we had to leave so quickly, we have nothing with us. Give us five loaves of bread, or, or whatever you've got, he says. And the priest says, well, you know, we don't have any, any bread here. You know, the, the people of this day, it's not like they have, you know, cupboards and refrigerators where they store bread. They bake the bread for the day that morning, okay, and then they eat it, okay, and they don't have time, and David's got to flee with his men, they don't have time to, to have some bread baked, the priest says, the, the only bread we've got is the bread of the presence, 
Now, the bread of the presence was a bread used for special, a special purpose in worship. Okay, on, on the Sabbath, special bread would, would have been made, probably on the day before, and taken into the tabernacle. Later on, this would be done with the temple. Twelve loaves would be taken in, and they would be put in the room that was called the holy place on this golden table that was called the table of the showbread or the table of the presence. The presence, of course, refers to the presence of God. Okay, and that, that bread, in a sense, represented the nation. The 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel there and, and, and was in the presence of God as he's worshipped there in the tabernacle, later the temple led by the priests. That's all the bread we've got. See, on, on the Sabbath day, they would take out the bread that was there. They would put fresh bread in. Now, that bread that was taken out, was specified in the law, was to be eaten only by the priest and that in a holy place. They were to eat that bread there on the, on the, in the area, the vicinity of the tabernacle or temple. The priest says, that's all we've got. And David says, well, we, we're hungry. <laughs> okay. we're, we need this food. And so the priest gives it to him. That's what Jesus is referring to. He ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Now, now the Pharisees would have to admit, they would have to admit, David is not condemned for this behavior. He is not rebuked in Scripture for it. Neither is the priest. A priest, sadly, will pay for this, this help given to David with his life. Saul will slaughter him and all of his family except for one, one survivor simply because they gave David some help. But it was right. It was right for David and his men to eat this bread because, as we'll see later on in the text, Mercy triumphs over ceremony. It was more important that the needs of these men for food be satisfied than that the ceremonial law be observed. So that's Jesus' first argument. Argument from a narrative, something that happened in the past. Now, a second argument in the next verse would have been considered by the Pharisees a notch up from that. Okay, argument from narrative is good, but an argument from law is better. If you can argue from an explicit, something explicitly said in the law, that's even a more effective argument, and that's what Jesus does in the second instance. Again, he says, have you not read? You haven't paid attention. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Now, what's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the fact that for the priests, their job is to offer sacrifices. And, and if you've ever done the work of a butcher, you know that's, that's work. Okay? It, it's physical labor. And for the priest, it, it, was, it was a lot of work. Because 
they're the ones who have to offer the sacrifices for everybody. And so their work is to sacrifice these animals. But the fourth commandment says you're supposed to refrain from your normal work on the Sabbath. And so Jesus points out that technically the priest in offering sacrifices, they're doing their normal work on the Sabbath. And that is actually commanded in the law. Indeed, if the priests don't do their work on the Sabbath, how are the people going to worship? How are they going to be able to come to the tabernacle and temple and worship God if the priests say, well, sorry, it's a Sabbath, we can't work? And so Jesus' argument is from the law here. Clearly, there's a priority here being set, he says. But then he takes it another notch up in the next verse. I mean, technically, he could have just stopped there with arguments based on the way they make arguments, and, and there would have been nothing they could do to refute that. But he's going to use this opportunity to push the envelope even further. Look at what he says in verse 6. And try to think about hearing this there in that grain field. I tell you, he says that when he wants us to notice something. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now, what is he talking about? I mean, the temple is the holiest place on earth. Ancient maps, you know, when, when, when you find the oldest maps, they have Jerusalem at the center of the world. Okay? Because the temple is the holiest place on earth. It is a place where God said, I will cause my name to be. I'll put my name on this place. I will send my Shekinah glory to this place. It's the holiest place on earth. How then can Jesus say something greater than the temple is here in this cornfield, this wheat field, whatever it was? What's he, what's he saying about that? What makes that place, in a sense, more holy ground than the temple itself? Well, <laughs> yes, he does. You're right. Do you see that when Jesus preaches that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is the king. And so the kingdom is present wherever he is. And he's saying, I'm greater than the temple. Now you see the relevance to the scene there, don't you? Pharisees are trying to guard the sanctity of the holy place with their rules about the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, you're missing what's right in front of your eyes. He himself 
is the true temple of God. That earthly temple was just a physical, a physical location that pointed to the real presence of God. And he, and he is the real presence of God. The, the temple is a shadow, we could say, of Jesus himself. He is the one who is greater. The, 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 and it's only here that God is fully and finally present, that, that the presence of God in the temple was taken away before the exile. But God is present fully and finally in the person of Jesus Christ. We, we need to see the incredible thing that he's, he's saying here. It, it, it's exactly the same kind of thing he was saying back in, in or over in, in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, you remember the episode of where, where Jesus cleanses the temple. They've ten, turned the, the courtyard of the, the Gentiles and the women there into a marketplace, and he drives them all out. And so he's challenged by the religious establishment. What, what's your authority for doing this? Tell us why, how you can, how you can do this. You know, how can you have authority over the temple? And he gives them the most logical and appropriate reason. Because he says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days... I will raise it up. Now, they totally miss it. Actually, the disciples miss it as well. But John goes on to say he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What he's saying there is this temple is just a shadow. This temple is just a passing physical location. Here is the real temple. And you will destroy this temple. You'll get together a lynch mob and kill me with government sanction. But in three days, I'll raise this temple up. Do you see the dramatic irony there? In that scene there, the religious establishment of Jerusalem claims to revere the temple. They, they, they claim the temple is wonderful and they respect it and everything, and they're desecrating it in order to make some money. When they ask for a sign of his authority, Jesus says, you're going to desecrate this temple. You're going to take my life. You're going to destroy this temple, but you will not be successful because I will raise it up. And in fact, he could have gone on to say, and I will build a living temple. Like Peter talks about when he says that you who believe are the living stones being built by Jesus into an eternal temple. It, do you see the great tragedy in our text? Here, 
Here is the anointed one, the Messiah, in the midst of these people who claim to know God's word. And all they're obsessing about is how much grain Peter and John are having for a snack. They're busy condemning people for following their for failing to follow their traditions, and they're blind to the glory that is right in front of them. That glory that John speaks of in, in chapter 1. We won't go there to read the whole passage, but let me just read this from John chapter 1. The word, that is, Jesus became flesh and dwelt. You know what the word there really is? He pitched his tent. He tabernacled. We could even say, perhaps, he templed among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Pharisees lack faith, and so they fail to see the glory. Now, having rebuked their wrong interpretation, asserted his own authority, Jesus now goes on in verse 7 of our text to declare the biblical truth that the Pharisees should have applied to the disciples. Okay, he's, he's said what they did wrong. Now he said, this is the way you should have looked at this situation, he says in verse 7. If you had known, again we see sort of the the implicit insult there, you don't know scripture, you don't pay attention to scripture, you don't understand scripture. If you had known what this means, and he's quoting here now, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. We saw Jesus use this same, same quotation back in chapter 9 of Matthew. You remember there when when uh, he was eating with tax collectors and, and people who were known for their immoral lives, and he's called to account for it, and this was his response. Go and learn what this means. Again, that implicit insult. You don't know your Bible. Go and learn what this means. And he quotes, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. I desire mercy, I desire love, I desire steadfast love, and not sacrifice. Now notice that uh, Jesus is quoting from Hosea here, and so Hosea is using this expression, I desire this, not that. Now, now don't read that like a contrast. This is not like saying, well, I like beans, but I hate broccoli. Okay, there's not a contrast. It's rather a comparison being set up. Okay, it's like a husband saying to his wife, I want your love, not your gifts. Now, he's not implying that he's repulsed by gifts, that he thinks gifts are a bad thing. What he's saying is that her gifts without her love are meaningless. And indeed, that's exactly what the Lord is saying through Hosea. Using Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful wife as an illustration of the unfaithfulness of Israel to her God, her betrothed. 
The Israelites are offering sacrifices and performing the rituals of worshiping the Lord, but they don't truly love him. They're just empty rituals. And, And so through the prophet, the Lord laments over Israel, like like a husband lamenting over his unfaithful wife. Here's here's the portion that Jesus takes his quote from in Hosea chapter 6, where the Lord addresses Israel by the name of Ephraim, the dominant tribe in Israel. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love... And the word here, I'm going to interrupt to say, is is not just an ordinary word for love. It's really hard for us to translate this word because there's so much depth to it. Sometimes it's translated steadfast, love, undying love. Sometimes it's translated mercy. Sometimes it's translated covenant faithfulness. It's, it's all those things sort of wrapped up together. Your love, that which you profess to have toward me, is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. You say you love me, and it just disappears. Therefore, I have hewn them by my prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. That's what Hosea is doing. He's speaking God's word, and he's trying to shine the light on what's happening here to expose the wrongness of what they're doing. And, he, and here's, here's the quote that Jesus uses, For I desire steadfast love, I desire mercy, I desire covenant faithfulness and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgress the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. And this, this failure to love on the part of the people is all the worse when we realize when we realize God's attitude of love toward them. Listen to how the Lord revealed himself to Moses back when he was making covenant with the people at Mount Sinai. I'm the Lord, the Lord, the God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. Notice the two times that the Lord uses that same term that Jesus is quoting from Hosea here. The Lord is abounding in steadfast love. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That that that. There is such an abundance of love in the triune God that it just overflows to his creation. The Lord is keeping steadfast love for thousands. That is, his steadfast love is of such an enduring quality that it continues to thousands of generations, extending forgiveness to sinners and fulfillment of his covenant promises. The love that the Lord God has for his people is not an empty ritual like theirs, but is real and powerful for their eternal salvation. So, so what's Jesus saying here? He's saying that 
that what God desires from his people is not ceremonial rule-keeping. He's not counting the number of grains of wheat that people eat. He's looking at their heart. He's looking for covenant love. What's the only, the only appropriate response if God is loving you with a steadfast love? Well, it's that you steadfastly love him in return, right? That's what the husband in Hosea wants from his wife. He wants her to love him like he loves her. The only adequate reply to the mercy of God is to be a merciful people. You remember that from the Sermon on the Mount earlier in Matthew? What God desires is nothing less than a people who reflect his steadfast love, his mercy, his covenant faithfulness. If you had known that truth, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you wouldn't have been accusing my disciples being lawbreakers because they ate a few handfuls of grain. You would not be trying to make what was given as a day of rest into a day of laying your rules as a burden on other people. You have utterly failed to show steadfast love and to extend mercy. Do you see the irony here? The irony is they haven't made too much of the Sabbath. They have not made enough of it. They made too little of it. They had the idea that all is needed to obey the fourth commandment is to conform to a list of what not to do. And they were experts in the, cat, in the department of how not to do it. We'll see as we consider this subject further in, in the rest of this chapter that they're remembering the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath is not primarily about what you don't do, it's about what you do. It's not about keeping tabs on other people's behavior and priding yourself in what you don't do for 24 hours. Rather, Sabbath keeping is ultimately a call to personal holiness that reflects the love of God. We've got to rush on because we've got one more verse here to look at. And in a very real sense, he, Jesus takes his claims even higher in this verse. The Son of Man, that's his designation for himself. If we had time, we'd go back and look at his use of that word in Matthew 9 and think about what exactly he meant by the Son of Man, but we're just going to leave it at that. He's identifying himself, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now to unpack what he means by that, remember that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. Okay, it didn't start with the Ten Commandments. It started back in creation. It was ordained by God when he created the physical universe. You remember that when the Lord brought the universe into being, and he, he appointed and blessed human beings as his vice regents, as it were, king and, kings and queens under him, over all this creation that he had made. Uh, that was not the climax of creation. Okay. Now, we all have an innate tendency to think that it's all about us. <laughs> but it wasn't. As it is, Mr. and Mrs. Adam don't even get the day to themselves. They share it with the land animals that are created the same day, the sixth day. No, the pattern of, 
of the six days of creation narrative is leading up to a climax that focuses on something, or rather someone, beyond this creation. Another day is needed. And so the Lord designates not a six-day week as if human beings were the culmination of creation, but a seven-day week. And he blesses and declares holy that seventh day as a day of rest there in Genesis chapter 2. What does one do on a day of rest? Well, he enjoys the fruits of his labor. That, that's what the Sabbath is about. Having completed his creative work, the Lord God rests, and he invites his people to enter into that rest with him. Mr. and Mrs. Adam don't even have to complete one day of work. <laughs> they create on the sixth day, and the next day is the seventh day, their day of rest. To enter into the rest of their Lord. What, what does that teach them? I think that teaches us something. It teaches us that our ultimate purpose, our ultimate meaning, our ultimate satisfaction is not found in anything that we do. Yes, we are to work. Six days we're supposed to work. That, that work should reflect our, our God. He is a creative God. He is an ordering God. He is a productive God, and we should be a creating and an ordering and a productive people. We should be making this world a more beautiful place, a place of ample food for everyone and for enjoyment of life. We're to glorify God in that work, but ultimately... Ultimately, we're supposed to remember that our earthly work is not an end in itself. Our week, our very lives are not complete until they have found rest in God, worshiping him and enjoying his presence. This is the God that Jesus is declaring himself to be when he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, I am the God who made the Sabbath. This is why we remember that, that our remembering and observing the Sabbath begins with receiving Jesus Christ as Lord of the Sabbath, as Lord of all the days. Our right observance of the Lord's Day begins there. It begins with Christ being first and foremost in our lives. Again, we'll see that observing the Sabbath is a lot more about what we do than what we don't do. But let's just, just end right here with the disciples where we begin. They're doing exactly what they ought to be doing on a Sabbath day. They're following Jesus. Right? They could not be in a better place doing anything better than following him. They're following the Lord of the Sabbath and learning from him how to live. And that's what you're called to do. Right? You're called to 
follow the Lord of the Sabbath, to learn from him, to be obedient to him, and, and enter into the rest that he has for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so prone to relying upon our own resources, thinking we can get by the work of our hands and mind, thinking we can solve every problem, thinking we can come up with a solution to the woes that fall to us or others. Lord, help us to uh, be rid of that kind of pride and self-sufficiency and to look to you and to find in you that rest that comes from placing our faith fully in you and simply asking you, Lord, what do you have for me this day? What do you have for me in my work, my service to others? What do you have for me in that time that you give me to set aside for worship, for fellowship with your people? Help us, Lord, to be your faithful people as you have been faithful to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.